So that passage is in Leviticus. It's actually uh, articulating the year of Jubilee, right? So every seventh year is a Sabbath year, and you're supposed to let the land rest. You're supposed to rest, right? You're supposed to live on what you've saved up until that point. But every seven Sabbaths, 49 years, right? On the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, slaves are set free because typically... In Israel, they'd be economic slaves. You would get into debt. Then you'd have to try to work your debt off to a landowner, which was very difficult to do, and you'd end up in perpetual slavery. Um, so you're there to be set free. The land goes back to its original owner. So when, you, when, they, when they entered the land, God divvied it up according to the 12 tribes, families of the tribes. So every 50 years, there's a hit the reset button. If you've accumulated more land, oh, goes back to the original people, right? You don't charge interest. You have all of the... There's no evidence that the year of Jubilee was ever practiced. We're, not, we're, 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 we're skeptical that Israel ever actually did this. However, it's helpful in that it sets God's intention. It sets the bar, like, high. Could we even approximate something like that, right? We'll come back to Jubilee. We're in a sermon series, and we're talking about cultural and Christian liturgies. Um, and I'm going to be talking about this a lot. Uh, so I'm going to put up the same slides for a few Sundays so that we're all on the same page. When I use the term liturgy, I'm guessing a lot of people are like, I don't know what that means. So this is what it means. I, this is how I'm using it, not what it means. Oh, thank you. From the book Desiring the Kingdom by James Smith, I highly recommend the book if you're looking for something to read. It was very impactful for me. And so I'm sort of stealing this notion of liturgy and Christian formation from that book. But I'm using liturgy to mean something like formative practices and habits that shape our hearts, our desires, our attitudes, and our beliefs. Liturgies help human communities, not just individuals, right, but whole communities create meaning, purpose, moral value, a shared sense of identity. So I want you to see words like habits and practices, the air we breathe, the cultural part of the things that just like are inherent in our lives. We often, it even goes unnoticed, but it's shaping us. It's, it's forming what we want, what we expect out of life. Uh, like cultural liturgies tell me as a man, there are certain things men are supposed to do, certain things women are supposed to do. Whether they're right or wrong, good or bad, they tell me that, right? This is what you're supposed to do during Christmas what you're supposed to do with your money, how you're supposed to act as a married couple, how you're supposed to raise your kids. These, there's like habits and practices that shape all sorts of things, right? But the thing that I care a lot about is that it shapes our desires. It shapes our hearts. I'll come back to that. There was one other slide. Uh, go back one. Liturgies often help answer our most fundamental questions like, who am I? What's my identity? What am I supposed to do, right? What does a healthy relationship look like? What's my purpose? Why am I here? What should I strive for? What does the good life look like? What are my moral responsibilities? What am I actually responsible for? What should I spend my time doing? The culture we live in has all kinds of liturgies related to practices and habits and values that shape us in ways we're not even aware of. Fortunately, Christianity gives us a whole alternative set of liturgies and practices and habits and things to engage in that can create a kind of counterformation that can like reshape us 
into the likeness of Christ, or at least that's the hope. So I'm trying to move away from like Christian belief and I want to move towards Christian formation. I want to be shaped. I want to be formed in deep ways. But too often we get human nature wrong, I would argue, right? So I, when we think about human nature, I picture humans being intellectual, thoughtful, rational, right? That's how you make decisions. You create a pro-con list. You think about what's in my best interest, and then you do that thing. We structure school this way. Schools give us give information. Let's go online. Just content distribution, right? That's what we do. That's what we think is important. That's what I do on, at church. I stand up like I'm doing right now, and I talk to your head, and then you leave. The problem is, if your heart doesn't change, if your desires aren't shaped, then your behavior is not going to change or be shaped. Because that's ultimately what drives what I do. It's what I want. It's what I love. It's what I desire. So the hope is that we can replace cultural liturgies with Christian liturgies that might shape us at our core, to our deepest selves, that make it much easier to live what I would call a unified Christian life. Because most of the time what I live is a disunified life. That's what I do. And I have a million examples. Last week I talked about my belief and thoughts about loving creation, creation care, caring for the environment versus my desires for convenience, quick, get out the door, whatever, and I end up doing nothing, even though I know I should. Just yesterday, like I have this deep Christian conviction that relationships, connection really matters, right? And I've got this great opportunity where my kids are out of school and they want to play D&D with me or a board game or something and I am peopled out. And so my knowledge, the, the idea that I know what I should do is to engage my kids in relationship gave way to my desire to watch television all day, which is exactly what I did. I literally didn't do anything yesterday. I was in my pajamas. Is that wrong? Not necessarily. I didn't violate any commandments. But it's my, what I know would be the best use of my time versus what I really want, which is to be left alone. And it's a divided life. It's not a unified life. Do you see that? I have all kinds of thoughts, beliefs. I wish I wanted X, but that loses out. So what would it be like to live a unified life surrounded by Christian formation? And hopefully together we can do this, right? So we're going to focus today on the cultural liturgy of consumerism that surrounds us all the time versus the practice or the ideal, at least, of jubilee because they are not the same, right? The liturgy of consumerism and the liturgy of generosity and jubilee that we find in Scripture are not the same. And so what's going to win out in our hearts in what we love. I can tell you what actually wins out in my life, and it's not even close, it's consumerism. I'm a great consumer. It's hard to talk about things like this at church. It's like really hard because I'm so bad at it. Probably someone else should be preaching. Like I just have, I'm just an abject failure in this way. So I'm saying things to me as much as I am to you. Like this is a challenge to me. It's also hard because I don't, like, to be deeply Christian would require a radical overhaul of our whole way of living that we're not going to do. I know we're not going to do it. We're going to leave largely the same as when you entered. I, 
that's true, and I don't know what to say about that, except it shows the disconnect between like our Christian espoused beliefs and values and the actual lives we live. There's such a gap. Thank goodness for God's grace, right? But I don't want to use that as an excuse to not change or be transformed. So the radical call that I'm going to give today will not be followed by any of us. There should be some kind of confession involved in that, right? Like we just confess that that's true. But maybe we can make baby steps. Maybe there are some things we can do that will change. And that's important because I believe it will set us free, even small changes. Okay, so here we are, Christians living in America, the richest nation ever, just surrounded by abundance and money, just capitalism, name of the game, competition, greed, buy. In fact, if we didn't, the economy would stop functioning. If we didn't overconsume, Christmas itself is like 25% of the income for most businesses because we like have to overconsume to stimulate it. This is like the, the logic of capitalism. Now listen, caveat, I'm not a socialist. I'm not going to advocate socialism. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm simply saying as Christians living in the United States, we have unique challenges, right? The issue for me is that we often think of these as blessings. Aren't we so lucky to live in this country? We have food. We've got money. We've got everything we want. It's so, we have luxury, we have freedom. We've got so many things that other people don't. And we say it's a blessing. In fact, many theological traditions now, it's like prosperity gospel. Like when you have a lot of stuff, when you make a lot of money, it's because God blessed you. That's why you have it. It's, a, it's literally directly from God. I would make the argument that that's not the case. That in fact, living in a country with wealth and abundance and luxury and comfort is a temptation. It's a challenge for Christians to overcome. And it's not like living in some other country would solve our problems. It wouldn't. You would live in another culture that would provide other challenges to being Christian, right? I'm just going to talk about the particular challenges of living in the U.S. It's really hard not to be filled with incredible desires for more stuff and more money and greater luxury and better vacations and bigger homes and nicer cars. I might say it may be impossible not to be filled with those desires. But that's in direct conflict with the call of the gospel, which is towards downward mobility. To seek those that are, have been left behind. To use whatever resources we have to empower others. It means to live below my means, to simplify my life, to divest myself of that so that others might truly live. And by the way, I would argue if I was willing to do that, it would actually set me free because I'm chained to my stuff. But I'm not willing to do that because while I know or I believe or I think certain things about Christian values, my desires say, Joe, you want to have nicer stuff and you're going to be happier if you buy nicer stuff and if you fill your garage and your attic and your basement and then buy a storage unit. That's, that's what's real. So I live a divided life. So let's compare briefly the culture we live in with Jubilee. So we're just going to look at a couple of scriptures. So this uh, Jackie read, right? The 50th year proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It should be a Jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family and to the, your family's property to your clan. 
The economic system that God calls for here is something like debts are forgiven. You get your own land back that you lost because of bad decisions you've made or, I don't know, famine or some other incident. Nope. You are free. No debt. We're not going to collect it. Forgiven. That's a little different, right? Than the way debt works in our country, which is to crush you, to suffocate you so that you can't get out of it, right? In fact, wealth is generated in our country because of interest. Because banks charge interest on housing loans and credit card companies charge interest and that's how it works. Vast sums of money. Next, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is God's. <laughs> that's interesting because once again, we live in a place where we, we value very much private property. I own it. It's mine. This is my house. This is my car. This is my land. I can do what I want with it. This is like a core value we live in, we're surrounded by, that many of us have said and thought, this is mine. Nope, it's not yours. Whatever you think of private property, it's God's. If you're Christian, it's God's. That's the truth. It's not yours. So the prayer is, God, what do you want me to do with this stuff that I have, that you have given me? How am I faithful? How do I use this so that others might live? That's the question. But we're surrounded by false narratives of capitalism that say it's yours and you earned it and you deserve it and you can do what you want with it. It's your right. We're surrounded by false narratives that say something like in a free market, as long as you work hard, you'll succeed. So when you don't succeed, we can blame you for being poor. When you don't succeed, we can blame you for being marginalized. This is, these are the narratives we're surrounded by that shape our desires. Like, we'll help the worthy poor, the ones we think work hard enough. We'll help them. But... We, we decide if you're worthy or not. I don't know anywhere in Scripture that says help the worthy poor. It just says help the poor. So we're surrounded by narratives that form us so deeply that many of you are uncomfortable with what I'm saying right now. <laughs> we're shaped so deeply, and I get it. I, you don't have to agree with me by any means, right? Like, I, I don't speak for God in any way. I don't know how to read Scripture or look at the life of Christ without a dramatic call to think about money, possessions, and consumerism differently. That these are temptations to be overcome and avoided. That we should want less, buy less, own less, and we should give more. I don't know how else to think of it. In ways so radical, I would argue, that I won't live it. The last one. If any of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and are unable to support themselves... Help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger. That's, that's ironic because earlier the law says you have to take care of the foreigner and a stranger among you. So they can continue to live. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear God so that they may continue to live among you. Do not lend money at interest or sell food for a profit. And in case you were wondering, I'm going to remind you, I, God, set you free. You were slaves. And I set you free. Go set other people free with the stuff that you have and with the money that you have. This is diametrically opposed to the world I live in, the culture I'm a part of, the way our entire economy functions. This is a radical, counter-cultural move that would say as Christians living in this place, 
we can say, we live in this place, that's great. I'm not advocating for a new economic system. I, I don't think socialism would solve the problems. I'm saying we as Christians, though, come together in a community and say, but we're going to live differently. We're going to be shaped differently. We're going to have a different set of desires and values. We're going to use our resources to set people free. No matter what the world does. And if we do it together, maybe we can make those steps. Because alone, I'm a mess. So I emailed the question out. I got some responses. I got very thoughtful responses. Mark gave me a great response. Elaine Kempton gave me a great response. Doug, I think you might be on Zoom. He gave me a great response, but I appreciate that. But here was my question. I'll put it up so we can share a little bit. How does the liturgy, and here I think of the mall or Amazon or Walmart, the liturgy of consumerism, right? Those practices and habits that surround that. How do they shape us? How do they shape us away from maybe what, what Christ has in mind? How do they shape our identity and our values? What, what vision of the good life do they paint? I think you get the sense of what I'm asking. So what do you think, right? How are we being shaped by the liturgies of the mall or the liturgies of Amazon? Yeah, DJ. <laughs> I, like, I don't like social media, but Facebook Marketplace is like my TV. Yeah, yeah. It's like this online Bristol where I can just look for crap that I don't need. But the, what a deal! <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's available. That's what I'm always thinking. I hope it's available. I hope it's available. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing. So, but discontent. So this is marketers know that we, are, we act according to our gut more than our brain. They've known it forever. That's what will get you to buy. If I can make you feel ugly, you'll buy my beauty product. If I can make you feel unhappy or sad, then you'll buy the thing that you think will fix that. I'm going to go further. It's so deep. Our culture is so deep into this that my expectation is that I should perpetually be happy. That all of my problems should be solved with the abundance, with money, with something I can buy. And because I've bought into that, somewhere in my subconscious, I bought into that, I look for a solution. Anytime I feel discontent at all, I look for a solution. I pick up my phone, I drink coffee or something harder, I do this or that, I find a way because there's, there should be a solution to this problem. That, drive, that is a motor that could drive a powerful city. But that drives us to buy. Yeah, Shelly. Um, I, I read your email, and nothing came to me until this morning. Hmm. No, good. But I think they, some of it depends on age, but I think that they, they motivate us through fear. Hmm. Yeah. You know, you, you don't you need a life insurance policy because you're gonna die soon and your family to suffer. So it's fear based. And then it's also based on the principle of you are not enough unless Yeah, yeah, that's great. The fear thing, we, we saw that with the toilet paper run of like 2020, right? I mean, this is, that is nothing but fear. In fact, I don't even know why people are buying toilet paper, I just, but we're going to run out. 
you could a million things where fear drives me to purchase and purchase and and it, it makes it just it makes me more individualistic. The more I'm afraid, the more I'm thinking about Joe, me, my immediate family. I'm not really thinking about others, right? I've got to take care of me. And in fact, culture says you should take care of you and your family. That's what your that's what your job, right? So it makes me it makes it harder than to feel like I'm outward focused. And then of course, yes, inadequacy. Oh, huge, right? Sure. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Other thoughts, like the the messages that the liter. I mean, I've already heard about identity, right? I'm not enough. I don't have enough. I, I've already heard about the way it shapes desires, fears, and yeah, yeah. Um, so I also think there's like a pacing to it. So there's this like, if you don't hurry up and get it, you're going to miss out. So it's like an experience and mm. it's a time frame. You're always running out of time. There's no time to really pause and think. You better act on it now. You're never going to see another deal like this. And so it's this constant state mm. of like trying to force and trying to um, – like change the way that we experience like time and seasons and being able to just like sit with something mm. and evaluate and like practice pausing and breathing. And um, so it's like this constant drowning situation. Mm. Yes. They're very good at, at giving us like false, um, like when you, uh, I don't know. No, no, it's the feel anytime. Like there are many times in my life when like, um, I remember trying to purchase a home in the midst of one of those times when like yeah. there's like 10, 15, 20 buyers for every house, and you feel like you've got to pay any price, be the first one in line. Yep. It like drove all of my thoughts, right? And I, I do, that is lots of situations where it feels like I'm gonna miss out. Yeah. It's FOMO, yeah. huge. Uh, I think that plays a role. Yeah, Mark. I think in uh, consumerism, there's also like an addictive element. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I so I went to the mall because Nina got a hoverboard, so she can like like the wheels, you know. But it's snow, so she can't go outside. I'm tired of running into her in the house. I'm like, let's go to the mall. There's like just nothing but marble. But you go in, and it smells wonderful. It smells like the handsomest man in the world. Like, what is this cologne? I need it. Do you notice this? You go into every store, and, and like the muse, everything about it just makes me feel like I want to buy something. I'm like, it's genius how addictive. It like, and then, of course, there, there really is like stuff in your brain when you buy things that releases dopamine. I mean, it is addictive. But the whole surrounding is set up this way. Um, Amazon, less the environment and the music and the smell as much as it's so fast. It's so convenient. It's the, it's the American values of speed and convenience that I just can't say no to, right? But if there's something that just generates more, I, oh, I want that feeling again. So it becomes a real problem. Yeah, Margaret. Yeah, I have a sister who lives in Bakersfield, California. Hmm. Oh, sure.
Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Again, this, just to, like, I'll give you insight. As you're sharing, I'm like, my first thought is, I guess I had the wrong grandparents. <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, no, no, that wouldn't have benefited me to get a new car for my grandparents. Like, but, uh, no, it's, it's like, what does it look like to talk about Jubilee virtues, which are things like forgiving debt, forgiving what your ex-husband owes, letting it go, right? saying that what ultimately matters is something else. But to get to that place is very difficult when I'm surrounded, when the air I breathe is not that. When the air I breathe is, no, this is the stuff that will actually satisfy. So I have a, a few depressing stats and some practices we might engage in. Um, the depressing stats, most of you know some of this, but the average credit card debt in the U.S. is about $6,500 per person. So that's a, I, I don't even know what to say about that. That's a lot, right? Of course, this is like averaged out. It doesn't mean everyone carries this much. But for those of you who feel buried, um, it becomes increasingly important to try to figure out what it looks like to simplify and live with less, which is so hard. I think every human being needs to, right? Christians in particular but debt is something that literally just strangles you, right? Suffocates you. Um, I always think maybe there's something Christians can do, Christian communities can do to help alleviate some of this, right? Maybe there's a way together we can, we can start to set people free because it's so difficult and people need a second chance. I looked at 43 million have student loans, 43 million people in the United States, 40,000 on average. Right? This is just to get an education. You go in debt, right? $40,000. Uh, the next, in the United States, 1.9 billion square feet of storage. It's only 1.3 billion feet from earth to moon. I don't even know what to make, how to make sense of that. But like literally, if you just took a ruler, right? 1.3, you can get to the moon. We've got 1.9 in storage. So we have so many things that our homes won't even help hold them. Our garages won't hold them. Our Closets won't hold them. So then we get storage units, right? I mean, this is a, a bizarre phenomenon. We know it's an issue. We know our desires have been malformed. We know they're not in line with Jubilee or with Christ, who is intentionally poor. Rome's Galilee with those who are poor. Calls us to care for the least and the lost. So what would it look like to maybe, instead of living a disjointed life, to live a more unified life, and again, 
Baby steps are something like tithe if you're not, right? Practice every week generosity. If not to the church, then somewhere that needs help, some organization that needs you. It doesn't have to be here. It means something like getting rid of things, downsizing, living simply, right? Like simple sets you free. But that's really hard because we don't believe it. Or maybe we believe it, but our gut doesn't think it, right? Like, no, 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 that will make me miserable. How can you simplify? How can we simplify? How can we take our abundance? Because once we've simplified, once we've lived on less, once we've developed hearts of generosity, then collectively we can do crazy things in our community, amazing things to help others, ways of serving, ways of loving. But we can't when we're in debt. We can't when we're maxed out. We can't when 99% of our thoughts are about our own comfort and our own luxury. We can't do it. So I'm going to challenge you to even just do one thing. Simplify your life in one way. Clean out one storage area. Stop buying one guilty pleasure. Like just one thing. It will set you free. John Wesley who is not great at everything. He's, he's like our theological patriarch for Methodist. He had real issues, issues with women, issues with other stuff. No, you know, he's not Jesus. But one way he was pretty amazing was with money, was with consumerism, was with simplifying. So he has a quote. I've got his picture up here. Make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I love that. Make all you can. Like there's not wrong, nothing wrong making money. Save it so that you can give it, right? John Wesley was famous in his time. He was a preacher that drew crowds. He wrote books that people bought. He motivated an entire denomination, both in England and then in America, right? He made, uh, by some estimates, in modern day times, $6 million dollars died with almost nothing in his bank account or his pocket. All was given away. He lived as though he were poor. There's a story where for five nights in the middle of January in slushy London, he trudged through because he would regularly go and beg so that he could give the money to those who needed it. So he would go and beg for alms. And in a five-day period, freezing he was able to raise over the equivalent of about 100,000 US dollars now in five days. He was 81. He was 81. Now, again, I'm not expecting, I mean, is that going to happen in our lives? I don't know. Probably not. But man, I'd like to get closer to John Wesley than Joe Bankard on this issue. Mm. I'd really want my, my heart and my desires and, my, and what I love uh, to be that of a generous spirit. So let's pray. Lord, please challenge and convict us. Give us enough courage and enough grace that we might live simply, that we might live with less, that we might cultivate the kind of radical generosity and hospitality that you call us to.
that we would not think of what we own as ours, but that we would know that it was yours. Help us to be faithful with what you've given us. Amen. Please stand for our closing song.